0: You're listening to the Unsiloed podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Brett Christophers, who is a professor at Uppsala University in Sweden. Uh, and also the author of a couple books. Your previous books, one was called The New Enclosure. The other one's called Rentier Capitalism. And this most recent book is called Our Lives in Their Portfolios, Why Asset Managers Own the
1: World. Welcome, Brett. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Well, I think this book brings to our attention three trends that are all happening in the last couple of decades. One is this move from public equity to private equity, Right. And this is one that I spent a lot of time thinking about in my world. The second trend is the move from more fragmented to more consolidated or scaled entities in a bunch of areas, including housing. And then the the third trend is the the outsourcing of of public goods provision to uh, to, to private entities, which is also something that's deeply interesting to me because my graduate work back in the day was all about tax farming and the outsourcing of public administration in early Europe. And I think each of these can be analyzed separately. But I think that you raise concerns about all of these different trends. And they're non-overlapping and sometimes overlapping concerns. But this phenomenon is something that has really accelerated. All three of these have accelerated in recent years. And I remember back in the 80s when Colberg Kravis got started and it was restricted to a relatively narrow set of transactions, right? Go find a public company, acquire it, and you know, lever it up, and then maybe sell it, right? And that whole model has just expanded and taken over so much of the economy. So I guess the first question I would have for you is, you've come up with this definition of asset managers. And I think this it cuts across a bunch of different areas that the, the asset allocation world would think of as discrete categories. So how did you come up with this taxonomy of players in the investment space?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. One of the things I like to say to people is there's no such thing as a private equity firm. And what I mean by that is that when people talk about private equity, and they talk about venture capital, and they talk about hedge funds, and they talk about the big three, at the end of the day, we're talking about what are ultimately the same things. We're talking about investment firms who principally invest other people's money. And of course, there's differences in how they do that. Some of them invest in principally in public equity. Some of them invest principally in private equity. Some of them invest principally directly in real estate, for example. But at the end of the day, the underlying business model is the same. They are all managing other people's capital. And it's for that reason that I like to think and talk specifically about asset managers to draw this kind of umbrella concept, to draw together types of firms that people often will talk about differently. And, what, and I think one of the reasons it's useful to do that is that Whether you're talking about private equity investment or real estate investment, what you find is they're they're often using exactly the same kind of fee mechanisms and fund structures and so on. So that's why I use that terminology, because I think that the most important thing to really draw attention to is this fact that at the end of the day, most of the money that they're investing is not their own. And I think that's a kind of a really key feature of this. But even though, of course, they're using different investment strategies and different fund structures and so on. Does that answer that question?
0: Well, some people would argue that any kind of corporation that raises capital in the capital markets is managing other people's money, right? And, you know, they'd say the banks are managing other people's money. Aren't all financial institutions effectively managing other people's money?
1: Well, yes, that's true. But I guess what's specific about asset managers is what they do with that money. They set up investment funds to pull that money together, and then those funds carry out investments and hold those assets. And that's very different from what other companies are doing. So I think that's what's specific about it. But yes, of course, external capital is fundamental to capitalism in general.
0: Right. So any of these entities that use, I mean, I'm a lawyer, so I usually think in terms of legal categories. So hedge funds. Private equity, including buyout funds and venture capital, and these infrastructure folks—they all use the limited partnership model. But you don't spend a lot of time talking about venture capital, and you don't spend a lot of time talking about hedge funds. you, know, you focus really on the other category, which I guess some people call it private equity. But you know, when we're doing asset allocation, I think infrastructure is considered. Cap- First of all, when I do these programs for the pension funds. They're very focused on these different asset classes, right? (laughs) Because they need them in order to do their optimization models. I always thought that these categories were arbitrary because they seem to suggest certain mean and variance clusters, right? But in fact, when we're talking about these entities, it's really less a different type of asset as much as it is a different type of governance mechanism, right? And I think that's what you're digging into are these governance mechanisms or the legal and structural architecture of these organizations.
1: I think that's a fair point. And you're right. The book is not about hedge fund investing. It's not about venture capital. And it's not really about private equity. It's specifically about investment by asset managers in two, to use the terminology you just used, in two particular asset classes. So one of those is residential property, so housing in its various different forms, whether that's multifamily, single family, student accommodation, whatever else it might be. And the other is, again, to connect back to where we're coming from in this discussion, the point I would emphasize is that the types of funds that are used and the types of fee structures that are used for this type of investment are very similar to and actually originated in the private equity world. So when asset managers, when the likes of Blackstone and Carlisle and others began investing significantly in housing and in infrastructure, they didn't invent a new fund structure and invent new fee structures to do that. They basically took what they were used to in a private equity world and simply replicated that in this new space. And of course, the dividing line between private equity on the one hand and housing investment on the other is not a clear dividing line. So if Blackstone, for example, buys a company that is itself... An owner and operator of multifamily housing. Well, is that a private equity investment or is it a real estate investment? It's both and it could be categorized as both for different reasons.
0: Right. And so the move towards private equity, that was a trend that began in the 80s. But this move towards infrastructure and housing is a bit more recent, right?
1: Absolutely. That's a key. So A, it's more recent and B, it's very much geographically variegated around the world. So What my book argues is two main things in that sense. So first of all, it didn't really begin in earnest until the early to mid-1990s. So you didn't really get asset managers investing in housing and infrastructure on a significant scale until the early to mid-1990s. And when that began to happen, it definitely didn't occur evenly throughout the world. So looking at things from the US perspective, I think one of the really interesting things is that the housing story is a very big story. In the US context. So, out of the savings and loan crisis and in the, at the end of the 1980s and early 1990s, that was the catalyst for asset managers to begin to get into housing ownership because through the Resolution Trust Corporation, you suddenly had tons and tons of distressed property coming on the market and knocked down prices, just as you did after the 2009 2010 foreclosure crisis. And that was when big asset managers began to get into housing investment in a big way in the US. But even today, infrastructure is much less of a significant asset class for asset managers in the US than it is in other places in the world, principally because there's lots of infrastructure still that's owned by the public sector, owned by municipalities in the US, which if you look elsewhere in the world, things like water and wastewater infrastructure, certain types of energy infrastructure have been much more fully privatized in other parts of the world than they have in the US. So. One of the contrasts I like to draw uh, from the U.S. is the U.K., which is kind of the mirror image of the U.S., which is very little ownership of housing by asset managers, but massive ownership of infrastructure by asset managers, energy infrastructure, transportation infrastructure, water and wastewater infrastructure.
0: Right. And if you think about what the pitch is, right, so the money is raised from these LPs and, and I'm familiar with the LPs like the pension funds. The pitch to them is hey, these assets are really long-lived, right? And so you're going to get some kind of illiquidity premium because of the fact that these are super long-lived and they expect to be generating income for really long periods of time. And therefore, they'll match the kind of duration of your liabilities, right? That's a story that you hear right? So when we think about what are the drivers of this, part of it must be this pitch to investors. You didn't mention it, but David Swenson must have had a huge impact here in the United States with his Yale endowment model, which was geared towards these longer-term illiquid investments. And I think he started with oil under the ground and forests and stuff like that. And so it wasn't really that much of a leap to then move towards infrastructure and housing, right?
1: I think the question of duration, the question of asset maturity, temporal profile is a really interesting one because I think there are certain contradictions there that we'll probably want to come back to. But yeah, on the face of things, that idea of kind of matching liability and asset maturities, particularly for things like pension funds that have, as you say, long-dated liabilities, h- has always been a part of the story. But I think it's one with very many contradictions to it. But I think there's a couple of other Pitches that have always been there that are worth drawing out as well. So, another one has been the idea, which again, your listeners will be familiar with, I'm sure, is the idea of non correlation, which is, you know, if most of your money is being put into the public equity markets, then you want to have some money in assets that, even if there's a market downturn, will potentially give you positive returns in that environment. And a hedge fund is obviously one, but infrastructure and real estate have often been perceived to be another. So that's been part of the pitch. And then I think a really big part of the pitch, particularly in the first half of the 2010s, when you had a very low inflationary environment and, and obviously very low interest rates, suddenly a lot of these investors who historically had relied particularly upon bonds to earn their kind of annual yields, their 4 or 5% annual yield, suddenly they were faced with an environment in which bonds weren't supplying that regular annual yield. And asset managers were able to turn around and say, well, look, we've got these in- infrastructure and real estate funds where you can get dependable, reliable, regular yields of 5%, 6 7% as well as the possibility of capital gains. And so that became a very important part of the pitch, particularly in that period. Obviously, today, when interest rates have, have gone up again, that's not necessarily as strong a pitch as it was, but that was a very big pitch. Precisely during the period when much more money began to flow into these funds. But yes, absolutely. To go back to where you started that question, the question of maturity duration has absolutely been also part of the pitch. But as I say, there are contradictions there that we can get into.
0: Yeah. And of course, the irony there is that a you know, big driver of the value of these investments Is interest rates, right? I mean, you know, a lot of the gains that were experienced over the last twenty years or so were really a result of falling interest rates. You've got this nice steady stream of toll revenue, right? Or whatever it is. And the main determinant is what you're discounting it by. So a lot of those gains came from that and not from the leverage and not from necessarily any operational improvements.
1: That's absolutely true. But the only thing I would add to say to that is that there is a leverage issue as well, right? Which is to say that just as when asset managers invest in private equity, they tend to lever those investments. They also tend to lever investments in housing and infrastructure as well, often by exactly the same kind of amounts, 60, 70, 80% even, as they do in the private equity space. There has been a a lever angle there as well.
0: Now, I want to talk about the housing separate from the infrastructure. You highlight some of the horror stories of people who have asset managers as landlords, right? (laughs) And it makes the news usually when there's a a big player, just like it makes the news if it's Shell or Exxon that has a big oil spill. But a lot of people would argue that that doesn't really tell you anything, right? Because there's plenty of little producers of oil that have the oil spills that don't make it into the news because there really isn't any deep pockets to go after. So do we really think that, say, Blackstone is a worse landlord than, say, I don't know, Trump or Kushner? Like, uh,
1: Good, great question.
0: I mean, I, I've had some pretty crappy landlords over in my time, and they definitely weren't big companies. They were just local slumlords.
1: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And it's clearly the case that in whatever particular category of landlord that you might care to look at, public sector landlords, for example, historically in Europe, bog-standard property companies in North America, or indeed asset managers, that within any of those, and and mom-and-pop landlords, let's not forget about them, it's clearly the case that within any of those sectors, there are better and worse landlords. There are examples of very good landlords and very bad landlords. So the question you're asking is, I think what you're asking, I'll put it into my own words, is, is there any reason for thinking that, on average or overall, Asset managers like Blackstone, but obviously not only Blackstone, make for worse landlords and worse can be interpreted in lots of different ways than other private sector landlords. And for sure, you're right to say that most of the quote unquote evidence that has appeared in the public domain that potentially one might use to answer that question has been anecdotal. It's examples of horror stories where you know a handful of tenants in Blackstone-owned properties or Progress residential-owned properties or other asset manager-controlled landlords have talked about their horror stories with poor maintenance or rapidly increasing rents or whatever else it might be. True. But what I would say is that there is a growing body of academic research now based on various different metropolitan regions within the U.S., that has looked at particular sets of outcomes like in particular eviction rates and has found, and I think the evidence is fairly compelling actually, that has found that, for example, eviction rates are substantively higher in properties owned by landlords controlled by asset managers than amongst other sets of landlords. So I think there is mounting evidence that asset managers are quote unquote worse landlords. But I think that we need to wait to see whether that evidence continues to stack up. But certainly the evidence I've seen so far, looking at places like the Atlanta region, the Las Vegas region, other regions, that has looked at fairly extensive amounts of data, suggests that outcomes are worse amongst those types of owners. And I would argue that that's not surprising given the nature of the business model, given the sorts of incentives that the funds that they establish operate under, I think that's entirely understandable. Given the incentive to hike rents, to minimize maintenance expenditures, and to do so in order to facilitate a relatively rapid sale, like we've always seen in the private equity space, that's precisely the type of result you would expect.
0: Well, I mean, that seems like it would be less a difference of incentives because presumably all landlords are trying to make money and more a difference of Competency or efficacy, right? So, presumably, they have a lot of expertise that they can scale across this large enterprise that enables them to be more effective, I guess, when it comes to figuring out what the demand is or figuring out how to more smoothly go through the eviction process. But some people would argue that's a good thing, right? So, I knew a guy who was a parent of one of my students who bought a a public utility in Argentina. Electrical utility. And he was able to double its value and flip it in a few years. And the way he was able to do this was he realized that about half of the customers weren't paying for their electricity. (laughs) They just had like jumper cables that they would attach to the lines. And so he put in place a security system, which would figure out where the leaks were and then send it like a little SWAT team to go and disconnect all of the people who weren't paying for their electricity. And so the revenue went up substantially. And so a lot of people would say, hey, that's great. That's exactly what you want, right? And then if the problem is that the rates are too high, like that gets us into the world of regulation. So, I mean, it seems like if these folks are more effective at evicting, presumably in a lawful way, and we think that's a bad thing, doesn't that mean that the problem is with the eviction laws and not with their ability to utilize them?
1: I think that the answer to that question depends on one's perspective, right? I think their argument would be that they're just being more efficient. Than other potential owners of these types of assets. I think the way I look at this is to say, look, yeah, maybe part of it is about expertise and competency, but I do want to come back to this question of incentives and business models, because I think one of the things I think is very, very significant about this is that so much of this investment still occurs through fund vehicles that have a limited life and where. Because of that, the asset manager, as soon as it buys into these assets, knows that it's not going to be owning these assets for a very, very long time. The fund's going to be wound up six, seven, eight years later. And because of that, everything they do is really geared towards maximizing the value of those assets to potential buyers of those assets in two, three, four, five years' time. And I just don't think that's the case with other types of landlords. I think other types of landlords, sure, they're interested in maximizing profits. And sure, they might not have the same set of expertise that would enable them to do that. But I do think that the focus on buying with a view to selling is quite not unique to, but very, very distinctive to the asset management space. And I do think that implies a certain short-termism that is detrimental to those who live in those assets in the case of housing or rely on those assets for the provision of basic services, for example, in the case of infrastructures like energy and water infrastructures. And that goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is the kind of the myth of long-termism, the fact that There's this great irony in the fact that investors like pension schemes that, in theory at least, have an incentive to invest in assets whose maturity profile matches the maturity profile of their liabilities, nonetheless do so so often via asset managers whose funds have a fixed-term, relatively short-term life. To me, that's a relatively fundamental contradiction of the business.
0: Yeah. So these funds, you have a 10 life. You've got to buy the asset and you got to sell it you know, within that timeframe.
1: Yeah. And I think that switching you know, momentarily from housing to infrastructure, you look at something like the water sector in the UK, where asset managers have been very, very significant owners over the last couple of decades. You see the results of that, right? Which is that where they can get away with it. They tend to focus on sticking plaster solutions in terms of managing that infrastructure because they know they're not going to be around in 30 years' time or even in 10 years' time. And so what the UK has been left with is this kind of creaking system of of water pipes because the kind of long-term maintenance and long-term retrofitting that's required is just not undertaken by companies who know they're not going to be around for the long haul.
0: Yeah. So I want to get back to infrastructure, but in terms of, you know, because there the alternative is often public ownership in in the world of housing. And I know Europe is a bit different from the U.S. The alternative is we usually think of either owner operators, right, or public entities, publicly traded companies. And it's interesting that when we compare it to, say, owner operator, it looks like the private equity folks have a relatively short holding period. But when we think about publicly traded companies, I mean, the argument a lot of private equity folks would make is that the average holding period for stock is relatively short, right? So it's the public companies that are more short-term in their thinking because they have to release these quarterly earnings reports, right? Whereas. The private equity folks, they don't really need to release quarterly earnings (laughs) reports. And if they do, they're usually fake, right? So by being freed up from that constant scrutiny of the stock market, their argument is we can think long term. So if we're thinking about, you know, are they short term or long term? Does it really matter who you're comparing it to? Are you comparing it to an owner operator or are you comparing it to like a publicly traded company?
1: I think it does matter who you're comparing it to. But you know, in the case of publicly traded companies, yes, there's a kind of short-termism in terms of the ownership of their stock, but I'm not sure that necessarily tallies exactly with short-termism in terms of the holdings of the assets in which they're investing. Do you see what I'm getting at? I think that it's not apples and oranges necessarily, but I do think they're two subtly different things. And I also think that public ownership entails a certain degree of scrutiny that is still lacking in the case of these asset management companies, even if those asset management firms are themselves publicly traded. Many of them now are. The likes of, I know we keep coming back to it, but Blackstone would be a good, good example of that. So yes, the firms themselves are publicly traded, but much of what occurs through the funds that they established is obviously still very, very opaque in a way that is not necessarily true of publicly traded companies.
0: Yeah, and we in California, we have this debate all the time because if you... public pension fund and you invest in any kind of private entity, right, you have to publicly disclose all of your conversations that you have. And so a lot of GPs, they don't want to take investments from certain public LPs because they value this secrecy and this privacy. It's sort of a trade secret.
1: Yeah, no, for sure that's the case. Yeah, and, as, and and one of the things I say in the book is that you know is that most of the people who live in housing that is ultimately owned by asset controlled by asset managers don't even know that they have no idea who that the fact that Carlisle or whoever else it might be is the is the ultimate owner of their housing because firstly because the asset management company itself typically doesn't manage the property it contracts that out to property managers but then secondly there's a kind of normally a whole chain of intermediary holding companies that sit between the asset management fund and the housing itself. The kind of litany of top co and hold co and all all those as per the private equity world. So it is a very, very opaque world. And I think that's a very important part of it as well.
0: Now, I think what a lot of folks would say, certainly economists, they would say, look, the only way that you can make money in this housing is to take that leverage and scale that you mentioned before, which is really good at evicting people, right? And, you know, you apply it also to the management of the properties because at the end of the day, if you can raise rents, that would be seen not as evidence of being a bad landlord, but as evidence of being a good landlord because you figured out a way to make the property more attractive. And at least if we're in a competitive housing market, and we don't always have competitive housing markets, but if you had a competitive housing market, then higher rents and higher profits, that's got to flow from better product, right? So is there any reason to think that the skill that they have in evicting people is also being used to deliver a better product? Maybe when your refrigerator breaks, they get somebody out there. I mean, I've been on both sides of this where, you know, getting somebody to come and fix your tenant's refrigerator, that's something that is really a pain in the butt.
1: I think it that it comes back to exactly the point I made earlier about perspective, right? Sure, from certain economist's perspective, higher rents might mean better landlords, but from a arguably from a social justice perspective, that's not what higher rents represent. And I think there's also I think the other thing I would say is there's all sorts of different ways about thinking about what the sources of those higher rents are. One of the things I like to do is listening to earnings calls that is often a really useful way of finding out what's actually going on in this world. And so if you listen to certain asset managers that are active in the housing investment space, when they talk to the to politicians or when they talk to the media, they say, oh, look, these are competitive markets. We don't have any pricing power. We're just reflecting the market and raising rents where the market allows us to do that. But when you listen on to some of their earnings calls, they'll say, well, actually, we do have pricing power and in fact we aim to invest in regions where we think it's likely that we'll have pricing power because of supply shortages in those regions and so again it's this kind of mixed messages where on the one hand they'll say we're the answer to supply shortages because we'll invest in new property whereas when you hear them talking to others they say well you know the last thing we want to do is provide new property we actually target regions where there are supply shortages. Because we think that's going to give us the pricing power we need to raise rents at above market rates. And actually, if we think that there's going to be new supply coming on stream, that's a signal for us to sell, not to invest. So I think it's very, very important to pass the different messages that we hear from these types of entities and actually to be cognizant of the fact that pricing power is something that they actually do think exists and that they actively seek out.
0: Well, of course, the other concern that people have with scale is that it's going to flow back into the political process. And if larger entities are more effective when it comes to, say, lobbying, then that's a concern. And and that's certainly the case with the infrastructure projects. And and I, I think that with the infrastructure projects, usually we're talking about natural monopolies, right? So whether it's water or electricity and so we've got a couple models here. One is where the government owns and operates these, whether they're toll roads or parking. The other is popular in both UK and the US, which is publicly traded, regulated utility, right? So we have that here in California. And then the third is this private entity. So part of it goes back to Margaret Thatcher and she pioneered the whole privatization, but that privatization was primarily to publicly traded companies, right? Back in the 80s, Yeah. So what accounts for the move towards the private equity model in infrastructure in particular?
1: Yeah, well, I think, I mean, that's a really good question. And there has been a trend away, I think, particularly in the UK, but not only there, from the publicly traded utility model. And I think there is various reasons for that. I think that, first of all, investors were finding that under that model, it was harder to get the levels of debt into the business that they wanted to get into the business. That was easier to do under private ownership. I think also, you know, big asset management fan, they saw this as an attractive space. And if when they were minority shareholders in publicly listed companies, they didn't have anything like, obviously, they didn't have the control that they wanted and they didn't have the degree of ownership that they wanted. And so they became active in this space for precisely the same reasons that they became active in private equity ownership in the U.S. was they saw the potential to extract greater profits through private ownership and control than they could through the public equity model. So I think there was a whole range of reasons there that kind of replicated the earlier phenomenon of private equity that you had in the U.S. in the 1980s. Does does that make sense?
0: Yeah. I mean, and from the public entities' perspective, part of the story is there's a belief that private ownership might somehow be more effective or more efficient. But another part of it is that these public entities, they seem to have very high funding constraints and very high discount rates, right? And so they're desperate for cash, right? (laughs) You think about the city of Chicago, the city of Chicago's broke. And so when someone comes along and says, hey, we'll give you all this money and you're going to give us the revenue stream from your parking meters. I mean, this it's payday lending, right? (laughs) So what accounts for the rise in these funding constraints? Because These public entities, when they owned and operated this stuff, they were able to go to the bond markets if needed, get the relevant capital, or they were able to maintain taxation rates so that they didn't need to go to these payday lenders. So what accounts for that, right? Why can't they just borrow the money themselves and do this?
1: Well, I think that there are two answers to that, which, and it it depends on the type of public entity you're talking about. So I think if you're talking about, say, for example certain municipal governments, say across the US, and maybe not all of them, but definitely some of them and even many of them, or if you're talking about sovereign entities across, say, the global South, I think the, the, the funding constraints are actually quite real in, in many cases. I think if those types of entities, so for example, the government of, say, Zambia, were to go to the bond markets and say, we want to issue a a huge amount of new debt in order to fund investment in new infrastructure, then the, the bond markets would turn around and be relatively punitive in terms of the interest rates they were charged for that, whether for good or for bad reasons. I think that's true. So I think that there are certain public entities for whom those funding constraints are very real. However, I also think that there are many entities like for example the national government of the US or the national government of the UK or the national government of Sweden for whom the fiscal constraints are much more limited they're much more imagined than real and i think covid showed that you know huge public borrowing and almost no negative response from the bond market even though that borrowing was for investments that were not going to be re- revenue generative in the long term which infrastructure investments by their nature are and i think that There, it's an ideological question. So I think that those types of governments have, for all sorts of complex reasons, have persuaded themselves that they shouldn't be borrowing for major infrastructure projects, even though they could, and even though in many cases they can. And so, as I say, I think there are certain contexts, certain governments for whom the fiscal constraints are real, others for whom it's imagined. But in both cases, you get the same outcome which is an increasing turn to the private sector to undertake that infrastructure investment and to borrow for that infrastructure investment. And as I write in the book, if governments have increasingly persuaded themselves that the private sector is the answer in terms of infrastructure investment, then almost by definition, they've persuaded themselves that asset managers are the answer because asset managers have the command of the greatest amount of surplus capital today. If you look into the private sector to invest. And essentially, you're looking to asset managers because they're the ones that have all the dry powder.
0: I mean, in a way, what the government's doing is they're borrowing money, but instead of offering sort of a, a general obligation, they're offering some kind of collateral, right? And they're saying, okay, in exchange for this quote loan, you have the highways as your collateral, you have the toll roads as your collateral, you have the parking garages as your collateral, and I guess if I'm a taxpayer. I think I might be a little bit ambiguous about this because if I see my government selling all these bonds, there's no guarantee that money's actually going to be spent on building a toll road. Right? It, might, it might wind up just getting reallocated. I know this happens a lot when people donate money to universities. They say, here, I want to donate the money to university. I want you to do this. And then the university's like, well, thank you for your money. We're going to go do something else with it. Whereas at least in this case, you're going to get something out of it, right?
1: Yeah. And don't get me wrong. I mean, While I'm absolutely critical of the privatization model and specifically the privatization model that ends up with asset managers being the the owners of this type of infrastructure, I'm not a starry-eyed romantic when it comes to public ownership of, of these types of assets. I mean, I'm fully aware of the fact that in a place like going back to the example of the UK, where most of these assets in transportation and energy and water used to be owned by the state. That the state was often a terrible steward of these types of assets. Brit- British Rail was hardly a, a panacea for the commuter. I guess my point would be twofold, which is that the fact remains that in places like the UK and the US, governments continue to be able to borrow more cheaply than the private sector can and does. And so that incremental borrowing cost ultimately ends up getting paid by the taxpayer or the consumer or they're often the same thing, while the taxpayer consumer also pays for all those massive fees being extracted by the asset managers. And then, so that's the first one. And then the second point would be to say that while I don't think public, by which I mean government ownership of infrastructure or indeed housing, is necessarily likely to lead to better outcomes, I think it's always harbors the possibility of better or different outcomes than you get with private sector owners like asset managers, by which I mean outcomes that are not simply driven by the, by the profit motive. And so that's what I would draw attention to, which is that at least you have the possibility there. Whereas I think when you have private ownership and where you have asset manager ownership more specifically, by the very nature of those owners, you foreclose the possibility of outcomes that are potentially more socially just than those we tend to see in the world today.
0: Yeah, I guess I'm wondering if the rise in private financing of these projects reflects a broader lack of faith in the public sector, right? And whether there's some justification for it, you know, have our public governance models deteriorated in some way? You know, is there less accountability or less oversight? Because when we think about it, you know, government, I think Mozambique recently borrowed a ton of money to, established some fisheries and all the money was squandered and yet they're still stuck with the national debt, right? But if Sweden is doing it, I'm expecting that there's probably some voter oversight. And so does it really just depend on, do we think that the public sector has the right kind of governance in place?
1: So no, you're 100% right that the that, that trend towards private financing definitely reflects a loss of faith in public stewardship of, of these types of assets. I think you're also right that, and and I kind of hinted at this myself, that some of that loss of faith is warranted by the fact that there are countless examples of governments not being efficient, good, capable stewards of these types of assets. But I also think a lot of it's ideological. And what I mean by that is that I'm not a big fan of the word neoliberal, But I think this is one instance where the word is quite useful because I think at the heart of neoliberalism is this kind of ideological attack on the state and this kind of attack on the idea that governments ever are capable and efficient stewards and owners of assets or managers of enterprises. And I think that the neoliberal period has seen a steady erosion of confidence in the state, which ironically has been, to a significant extent, perpetrated by the state itself. In a country like the UK, arguably the biggest kind of destroyer of confidence in the government has been the government itself, particularly under Thatcher, but not only under the Thatcher, I think also under kind of new labor since then. The idea of small government and so on, so it's the government destroying belief in its own capacity. So I think that some of it is justified, but I think much of it is ideological and it's been driven by very, very kind of orthodox mainstream economists who have given credence to those neoliberal ideologies as well. So that's what I would say. And I think that the evidence for the private sector necessarily being a better and more efficient steward of these assets than the public sector is pretty thin on the ground as far as I've seen.
0: Now, look, the rise of these investment vehicles can't be told without also talking about the rise of public pensions and sovereign wealth funds, right? Because they're the ones that provide the the bulk of the money, right? And so, as I mentioned, I spent a lot of time with these public pension funds and they are big supporters, right? And so when we see that person who is evicted from their apartment (laughs) in order to benefit the landlord, well, oftentimes the landlord is indirectly, right? The police officer and the fire department worker and the school teacher, who happens to live nearby. Maybe they're the ones that are getting evicted. Or
1: even living there. Yeah. Maybe they indirectly own the apartment from which they're being evicted.
0: So how important is that? Because then they also will be allies, right? And they're benefiting the public sector because I think from the government's perspective, they really don't want to be contributing money to these pension funds. And so the higher the returns the pension funds can get, the less the public sector has to contribute. So is this sort of a, a positive feedback loop where the public sector believes that they're benefiting in terms of their reduced contributions to the pension funds?
1: It's a great question. And obviously, as you well know, one of the main lines of defense that these investment managers, asset managers, rely upon when they come under attack from the likes of me, but not only the likes of me, but from politicians, from the likes of Elizabeth Warren and so on in the US, is they'll say, look, You don't want to be attacking us because we're providing a a public service in the way you just outlined, which is to say- I mean, the
0: school teachers are the rentiers of the world now, right?
1: Exactly. Which is to say, if our funds perform well, then that's all to the well and good because the money we're investing through those funds is the money of the firefighters and the teachers and the nurses. And that's a very powerful piece of rhetoric. And it's that rhetoric, I think, which sustains the business model in large part. Because people buy that rhetoric, and therefore the business continues on its merry way. And as you know, I kind of I take issue with that discourse in the book, and I do so on a number of different grounds. The first is to say, look, I think a lot of those teachers and nurses and firefighters wouldn't necessarily be very happy about their strong returns that are being generated by real estate funds, for example, if they actually knew. The, the source of those strong returns is rents being hiked on their neighbors or, or on themselves. And obviously, they don't know most of the time. They have no idea that that's where a lot of their or at least some of their money is being invested. So that's one thing I'd say. The second thing I would say is that, yes, if a real estate fund or an infrastructure fund being, that's been established by, say, KKR performs well that some of the benefits of that flow to quote-unquote ordinary workers th- through the investment of their retirement savings. But the reality is that actually very little of the money that's in these funds represents the retirement savings of ordinary workers. More and more, more more and more it isn't retirement savings at all. More and more, it's money be- that's being put into these funds by big sovereign wealth funds from places like Saudi Arabia, Singapore, and other places and then even if it is retirement savings for the most part it's the retirement savings of those people in society that have a lot of retirement savings which is not teachers and nurses and firefighters it's consultants and bankers and insurance company executives and asset management professionals themselves so i would argue that only a tiny sliver ultimately of the money that is being invested by these funds represents the retirement savings of ordinary workers so for asset managers to point to those workers as the ultimate beneficiaries of their funds is a very misleading and actually, I think, quite disingenuous type of rhetoric.
0: Well, I think probably the most disturbing thing in your book is really when you look into the deal terms for a lot of these deals, right? And I think you can look at this on both sides, right? So you can look at it in terms of the deals that are struck between the Municipalities and the governments, and the asset managers themselves, and also the deal terms that the asset managers strike with the public pension funds. And I'm more familiar with the stuff on that side of things. And I think here we have a case where the skill in terms of understanding the deal terms is clearly a disparity. Right? The lawyers who work for the public entities and the lawyers who work for the asset managers are not getting the same salaries and. The negotiators on both sides are not getting the same salaries. And so it doesn't seem like a fair fight, right? So I think the biggest criticism is that these folks are generating returns, which we would think flow from the assumption of a lot of risk. But in practice, the deal terms reduce the risk quite substantially, right? So that I think is the biggest concern. And so the counter to that would be, well, Look, if there are lots of these asset managers and they're all competing for the business, and if you have an open auction, then there's no reason to be concerned about the deal terms. So why is this market not sufficiently competitive to guarantee that those entities selling off these rights are going to get the best price?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, to which I must admit I don't have a great answer. You would think that the sector is competitive and you would think that a growing competitiveness would have led to better and better deal terms for those on the other side of the table. But it obviously hasn't worked out like that. Just as you would expect that in a business like commercial banking, you would expect it to be very competitive and you would expect that interest rate increases would be passed on to savers in a way that doesn't that typically doesn't happen in the real world, but I don't know why that's the case. Clearly, it's not like a cartel-like situation where they're—at least I don't think so—where they're fixing prices and agreeing not to shift on deal terms. But the re- but the reality is that the kind of the model you refer to, which is one where a lot of the risk is basically transferred to the limited partners away from the general partner, continues to persist. And you're right that I think that. I do show in the book that when these funds perform well, asset managers, the asset managers themselves, manages to capture a significant amount of the upside. And when these funds perform very poorly, almost all the downside is absorbed by the limited partners. And as you say, you would think that
0: Well, also a lot of the downside is absorbed by the contractual counterparty, right? So talk about a bunch of these situations where if the traffic drops on the highway or if people stop using the parking meters, right? There's usually like a backstop that limits the downside risk, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, and it's another thing that's mystifying, right? Is that again, you would think that the given asset managers are kind of lining up to put their money into these deals, the governments would be able to say, well yeah, you guys take the risk. We're not going to provide revenue guarantees, which they do continue to provide. I think it is a bit of a mystery, and it suggests to me that maybe that world is not quite as competitive as we're often led to believe that it is, because real competition, by which I mean price competition, would have competed some of that, those gains away, I think.
0: Well, from talking to the folks in, on the LP side... They don't think that they can ever have the capacity because they don't have the ability to hire people and pay them a lot of money, right? So here in America, the only public sector employee that is going to make a lot of money is the the football coach, right? (laughs) And so we can pay the football coach a couple million a year to run our public uh, university football team. But when it comes to hiring the kind of staff that we would like to have to manage our portfolios, those folks are, you know, we can't afford them. And so you talk about the, like you talked about the Ontario, the Canada model, and in the Canada model, there, I mean, it seems like a bit of an exception, right? Where the
1: it is an exception, yeah, and we'll come back to just. I think the other thing also is I think like in many businesses, and this is not just the asset management world, but there's also kind of the safety in the big names, and what I mean by that is that if the LP takes what it perceives to be a risk and puts money into an investment fund run by a manager that charges lower fees and that fund kind of bombs, then someone's going to turn around and say, why did you take that risk? Whereas if they put it into a fund managed by a Blackstone or a KKR, one of the big companies that has good brand recognition but charges higher fees, if it bombs, they'll say, well, we went with the best firm. And so I think there's definitely an element of that as well.
0: So, so it may, it seems like an open entry business. It seems like a very competitive business. But in practice, it's like no one ever gets fired for hiring IBM. <laughs> no one ever gets fired for hiring Bain or, or Carlisle. So maybe it's really not quite as competitive as it looks.
1: Exactly. no one ever gets fired for putting money with Blackstone. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a big part of the story. But yeah, and I think that's important to notice that. Yeah, to go to the other side of your story, yeah, the Canada model for for those not aware of what we're talking about here is that if in general around the world, big institutional investors in general and pension schemes in particular that have wanted to put money into infrastructure investment in recent decades, if around the world most of them have done that via asset managers rather than directly, The big Canadian public pension funds are an exception because they do much more of their investment directly themselves rather than relying on asset managers and paying them big fees to do that. And so the good examples of that are the Canadian Public Pension Plan Investment Board and OMA's Ontario Municipal Employees Retirement System, is another one. And they are exceptions to the rule and they've been doing this for a long time. And what that means, obviously, is that like the big asset managers, they have built up institutional capacity. They have invested in recruiting and paying people that are experts in that type of investment, but they are absolutely exceptions to the rule.
0: Now, one of the hot topics that I've spent time with with our public LPs is ESG investing, right? And there, the idea is that if you're going to pick a manager, you want to take a careful look at how they operate and what they're doing with the money. Is this a way of maybe mitigating some of the undesirable aspects of asset manager behavior that you identified in the book?
1: Maybe. I think what I would say there, though, is that if you look at what's been going on with ESG, it's been mainly E, right? It's the E that's taken... For sure, in the last five or six years, it's it's the environmental part where most of the emphasis has been. And I think that, yes, it's obviously true that big asset management firms remain heavily invested in fossil fuel companies, particularly through their index funds, but not only through their index funds, but it's also true that much of the investment Much of the equity investment, at least, that is going these days into building out renewable energy capacity around the world is also being provided by big asset management firms. So, BlackRock, I don't know if you heard, I was in New Zealand last week and BlackRock has just signed a big new $2 billion deal with the New Zealand government to establish a fund to invest in renewable energy infrastructures in New Zealand. And so, I think the asset managers are being very smart about riding the positive aspects of the ESG bandwagon, as as well as potentially leaving themselves open to criticism, insofar as they remain other parts of their business remain heavily invested in fossil fuel companies. And as I say in the book, you know, Brookfield Asset Management, for example, is not only probably the, the biggest owner of renewable energy infrastructures among asset managers worldwide. But it's one of the biggest owners of renewable energy infrastructure worldwide of any kind, whether you're talking about asset managers or any other types of firms. So they're big players in that space.
0: Now, one last concern that you mentioned is the presence of sovereign wealth funds, right? And how they are now funneling lots of money into infrastructure. And I guess there's a couple different potential concerns here. You're emphasizing the fact that they want to exert influence, but you know, a lot of people I speak with, they think of some of the sovereign wealth investors as the fact that they're not necessarily asking for the kinds of returns that others are asking for. They see this as potentially a good thing f- for the folks that are trying to attract investment. It's a bad thing for <laughs> the other LPs because they realize that their returns are going to go down as a result. So is there something we should worry about specifically with regard to sovereign wealth funds? Does it depend on the sovereign wealth fund?
1: I think it does. And I'm not, yeah, I think it does. I'm not sure that the book is as critical of sovereign wealth fund investment via asset managers as maybe you're suggesting it is. I think there's lots to say about sovereign wealth fund. The point I always come back to about sovereign wealth funds is where their money's coming from, right? And for the most part, it's coming from oil and gas. Norway is the classic example of this, right? And this links to the discussion we just had about ESG. So the massive Norwegian sovereign wealth fund has made a huge deal about, we're leading on ESG investing, we're we're not going to invest in arms. We're very careful about where we're putting our money. But the reality is, well, where's the money coming from? It's coming from, all of it's coming from oil and gas extraction. So I think there's a kind of a greenwashing aspect to this. And that would be what I would bring people's attention to more than the question of them being increasingly dominant contributors to the types of investment funds run by asset managers. Does that make Mm -hmm. sense?
0: Yeah and so what initiatives do you think should be considered right to perhaps mitigate some of the more concerning aspects
1: Yeah I mean that's a that's a great question I'm a bit of a heretic on these things and I simply take the view that there are certain types of assets like housing that I just don't think at the end of the day are suitable investments for limited life investment funds run by private sector asset managers i think that the sets of incentives particularly the short termism that is embedded in that model makes asset managers with their investment funds relatively unsuitable owners for these types of assets and i think that it's interesting that there are some jurisdictions in the world like denmark would probably be the best example that have said look we don't think our housing should be owned by these asset managers, or at least we are going to take steps that limit the capacity for these types of actors to become active investors in our residential property stock. And I say that because I'm skeptical of the answer that is more normally given, which is to say, look, regulation can effectively mitigate the types of deleterious consequences that one might see with this type of investment. And I say that because I just I think evident people have been making that argument for 30 years or so, and yet we consistently see regulators being captured, regulate, regulation being gamed by very smart investment institutions. So I'm just not convinced that regulation is the answer. I think regulation is part of the answer, but I also just think that there's an argument to be made that certain types of investment by certain types of investment institution in certain types of assets is something that probably shouldn't be taking place. So in other words,
0: you mentioned Iowa prohibits corporate ownership of farms, right? So something which would restrict the kind of type of owner for certain types of assets.
1: Exactly. Which obviously very much goes against the grain, I think, of where we're at today politically which is which is to not limit asset ownership, except in very rare examples. And farmland ownership is actually a very good example of that. But again, that's been pared away as well. And I say, in, as I discuss in the book, big asset managers like Macquarie and Brookfield are massive owners of farmland, if not in Iowa, then certainly in places like Brazil and Australia and in, and in large other parts of the US.
0: Well, Brett, thanks so much for joining me. The book's called Our Lives in Their Portfolios. And for anybody who's interested in investment management and asset allocation, and certainly in private equity, be sure to check it out. Thanks so much, Brad.
1: Thanks for having me. I have very much enjoyed the discussion. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast, produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode,
0: please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.